Um, and I, I really can't stress the consumer piece enough. I mean, I think that the reason there are brands that are going in all in on sustainability and the reason that greenwashing does exist is that the consumer is looking for it increasingly. Um, and consumers have so much power um, and they really, you know, truly can create the change that they're looking for if they demand it from the brands. Welcome to another episode of Animalia, where we bring wildlife conservation, climate change, and social justice together to help people connect the dots and get involved. Today on Animalia, we are exploring the dark underbelly of clothing and fashion that most people know very little about, synthetic fibers. Over 60% of all the clothing in the world is made of synthetic fibers, of which nearly all are derived from petroleum-based monomers. That's right. Most of the very clothes you wear are derived from petroleum. We're joined by Elisa Bayer Lentz, co-founder of Kintra Fibers, an incredible new startup that is creating synthetic fibers from natural feedstocks instead of petroleum, and may end up playing a massive role in our fight against the climate crisis. Elisa previously founded Hero Backpacks, a social enterprise company that sold sustainably made backpacks to support girls' education. Through that journey, she learned about the world of synthetics and saw there was a much bigger problem to go solve, shifting the very source of how these products are made and getting the clothing and apparel industry off of fossil fuels. She's one of the most passionate and dedicated entrepreneurs you'll meet. And full disclosure, I'm privileged to be an investor in her company, Kindra. Let's meet Alisa. Well, Alyssa, thanks for joining today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, you know, for context for our listeners, you know, the the textile industry, the synthetic textile industry is, I believe, over 50%, right, of the fashion and apparel industry overall. It is. Synthetic textiles account for 63% of global fiber production. Got it. And the fashion and apparel industry accounts for roughly 10% of greenhouse emissions. And it's worth noting, too, that that that's not the only environmental impact. That's just the greenhouse gases. There's also water pollution um, and a number of other issues, fair labor um, practices that are big problems throughout the industry as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we often sometimes, you know, it kind of does this as it tries to make sense of climate change for, for everybody. But we often think of greenhouse gas emissions as the sort of only environmental, like as the primary environmental, you know, condition to monitor. But water pollution is a massive one. And the fashion and apparel industry contributes a lot to this, not just in the form of plastics and, you know, microplastics that end up in the water supply, but also in, you know, how fashion and apparel is dyed. And there's a lot of, you know, runoff uh, and waste from that as well. Absolutely. And I think actually one, one thing that's really interesting that was recently released this year, McKinsey and the Global Fashion Agenda released a study where they went further into depth on the specific aspects of the fashion industry supply chain and how greenhouse gas intensive each uh, different aspect is. And they found that more than 70% of the emissions come from upstream activities, in particular, the energy intensive raw material production, preparation and processing. And then the remaining 30% are generated by downstream activities, which is kind of, you know, the downstream activities 
because they are, you know, what the consumer touches is generally what we tend to think about when we're thinking of emissions, things like transport, packaging, retail operations, and even the use, like the day-to-day usage and the end of life. But really the, the biggest, you know, most polluting part of the industry in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions is those um, energy intensive raw material production, um, which accounts for more than 70% of, of total emissions. So I thought that was, you know, really interesting to highlight. I think that help can help the industry understand where to really put innovation to, to help fix the specific aspects of the supply chain that are a little bit broken. Absolutely. And then the third kind of the other leg of the the problems with the fashion apparel industry, just to set the table for our listeners. So we have the greenhouse emissions that we're going to talk to a lot and talk about synthetics primarily in this, this podcast episode. We have the water pollution. We also have waste. I've, I've read different stats. Maybe you know some of these offhand about what percentage of fashion apparel kind of ends up in landfills and waste, but I, it's an astronomical percentage. And of course, this has been exponentially increasing in the last 20 years due to fast fashion, primarily when you think of, you know, brands like Zara or H&M, you know, Urban Outfitters, just constantly chasing trends and, you know, creating things that are almost designed to be discarded as soon as they're out of season. So the mm-hmm. customer buys something else very quickly. James, you're right. There, there's the, the statistics are all shocking in terms of how much clothing ends up in landfills. The one that I'm aware of that came to mind right away is 84. percent Yeah, it's it's crazy. So before we get in all that, so it's a problem. And Alyssa, uh, you and your company Kintra are working on a very very important solution that I'm really excited to talk about. But let's first start with talking about you. Tell us who Alyssa is, the person. Sure. Know, yeah. So, so yeah, I started uh, my first business four years ago, which is a company called Hero Backpacks. And I was inspired by the Tom Shoes of the world. So the concept of, you know, the fact that you can buy a product and create change for a cause that you specifically care about in the process. So I launched a product. It's a backpack. And with every backpack purchase, we were able to give one day of school for a girl accessing education for the first time through a nonprofit partner called She's the First. It was through uh, my work with Hero Backpacks as I kind of started diving deeper and deeper into the supply chain and understanding my, you know, my own environmental impact of the materials I was using. You know, I, I wanted to do something more to fix a number of the issues that I, that I found. It was really challenging, actually, as a designer to source materials that were sustainable in the sense that they actually checked all the boxes of uh, material that I would feel comfortable using. Often I felt like the more um, that I peeled back the layers of the onion of sustainability claims, the, the less comfortable I became actually incorporating that material because there was always some sort of negative repercussion. So for example, the industry is currently, you know, using the concept of using recycled ocean bound plastic water bottles and actually just down cycling them into textiles that still perpetuates microfiber pollution. So I wasn't comfortable using any, you know, recycled um, plastic textiles in my production because of this secondary issue that isn't really talked about. And then in terms of, you know, I, I want, I didn't, I've never used any leather, but I, you know, started doing um, custom orders for companies and events and they wanted leather-like products. 
And of course, you know, I didn't want to source any leather, but then I found that every leather alternative is um, made of plastic. And there are increasingly other alternative types of leathers hitting the market using kind of exotic feedstocks, some of various plant sources. Unfortunately, the majority of those still, you know, they might be 70% plant and 30% plastic because they're just not able to create that performance that designers are looking for. So, you know, learning these issues and a number of other issues in, in the supply chain, I just felt like I couldn't make use of any of the materials out there today. And I also found that if there were materials that I really liked, often they were just too expensive for, for me to be able to actually incorporate into my designs. And then I met my co-founder, and he has an incredible background in nanoengineering, which is a fancy word, a fun word for material science. Um, and he had actually been working on a chemistry that honestly checked all the boxes in terms of sustainability for what I was looking for, just personally as a designer. And it just made sense for me to jump on board to help him scale it and offer it to other brands. And, and I am going to, it's funny because I always have to, I always have to re-ask this question. And I think it's part of the this, this sort of product and the cycle we're in. Yeah, especially as uh, and, and when you're an, a startup founder is, and I do the same thing, kind of live and breathe your life through work. Because it's always interesting because what I'm actually asking for is who, what makes you Alyssa as a person? <laughs> and it's, it's funny because every time we ask that question, you know, we get a very interesting, and as of your background is extremely interesting career answer, but I always have to re-ask it of saying, no, 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 I want to know who you are. Not not who you are on LinkedIn, but who you are as a person, what your values are, what you care about. So I'm going to re-ask that question again <laughs> and ask, who is Alyssa? You know, I have a hard time answering that question because it's hard for me to actually separate myself from my work. It's something I'm working on. I'm, I'm learning my boundaries. For example, my, my beach jog that I always take, you know, every, every weekend, a longer one and at least... I, I try to do it daily, you know, getting out and, and being out in the environment by the water. But, you know, everything that um, I do in my work really stems from kind of something that happened in my life. So the reason that I launched Hero Backpacks is I, I moved to the United States, my family, um, and I moved to the U.S. from Russia when I was a very little kid, and I didn't speak any English yet. And unfortunately, None of the teachers in the school district that I was in at the time, when we first came here, really picked up on that or noticed it. And so I just kind of, you know, had to kind of absorb and try to learn it on my own. But what that resulted in is just me, one, not actually being able to understand people and just feeling really out of place and feeling like I didn't have a voice, feeling like I just couldn't communicate at all. And when you feel like you don't have a voice, you kind of um, internalize that you don't matter. And so when I grew up, that's, that's really what prompted me to launch Hero Backpacks was, you know, the best way to empower girls around the world with a voice is through access to education. And millions of girls around the world still don't have access to education today. So I wanted to change that narrative that I lived through for, for girls that are currently still stuck in that cycle. So, so for me, I think my work has always been an expression uh, one way or another of, of who I am and the things that have happened and impacted the, the journey that I ended up following. And my work with Kintra is really an extension of that. You know, I, I found that the, 
the most impactful thing to do today and just this incredible sense of urgency to fix the climate crisis that we're living in. I think, you know, we're all waking up to the fact that this is the most pressing global issue that we're facing. And luckily, you know, I had the experience that would allow me to contribute in in one way or another. So I think that's why I have such a hard time answering the question of who I am. Um, And it's easier for me to answer it through my work because it's always the way I've expressed myself. I've had the pleasure of getting to know you a little bit this year. And so maybe I will, and since you have a hard time separating yourself out from your work, (laughs) I can, I can share what I've gotten to know about you. Oh, you know, I, obviously you care deeply about the environment and, and climate. That's, that's uh, very, very clear in all the conversations we have and, and, and what you've chosen to do. You know, I think you have a, you're a very curious person has a general Mm -hmm. kind of curiosity about the world. Uh, You have a big heart and you seem to just Mm -hmm. sort of care about those around you. Um, you seem to value, you know, relationships with people and value the people in your life in a big way. And yeah, I, I really enjoy getting to know your, the relationship you have with, sorry, is it your husband or? Yeah, Morris. Husband, husband, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the, your dynamic together is, is uh, very enjoyable to watch. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I'm going to put this podcast in my back pocket whenever I need like a pick me up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a very like dry sense of humor. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, you two are funny. Awesome. <laughs> Well, so, you know, it's in that position you said about, you know, the the issue with climate change, which is obviously something we talk about a lot on Animalia. You have chosen to tackle that by tackling one of the biggest contributors in the world, which is synthetic fibers. And I think most people don't realize, I didn't even realize this, honestly, until, you know, I looked into the space when I started talking to you was just how much of a pair on clothing comes from synthetic and fibers comes from synthetic fibers. Like I, I think a lot of people along with myself think of cotton always as like, well, everything's mostly cotton, right? We just hear cotton this and cotton that, but the fact that over 50% of clothing, I think you said at the top of the podcast, 63%, is that the right number? Mm-hmm. That's synthetics. Yep. Come from synthetic fibers. Can you first explain to everybody, like what is bundled into the group that uh, is known as synthetic fibers and what are the, then what is the other, you know, roughly 37%? Yeah. So um, actually, if you give me just one second, I can pull up the exact numbers. There's this amazing uh, industry, and I can I can send you this also for show notes, but there's this incredible industry stakeholder group called Textile Exchange. And every year, they do a deep dive um, into the global fiber market, reporting on kind of best practices across all of the fiber categories. In 2019, polyester represented 52% of the global fiber production. And the remaining part of that in the general 63% of synthetic textiles is things like nylon and other synthetic textiles that comprise that. And cotton represents 23%. And then there's another category of fibers that are kind of... uh, I guess if I said the word man-made cellulosic, people might not know exactly what I'm talking about. But that's like the, the you know, if you hear about eucalyptus fibers or bamboo fibers, that's kind of that category. They're sometimes referred to as semi-synthetics. And then fibers like wool really represent less than 1%. Down is less than 1%. And then there's kind of a blanket other, and that's other natural fibers are only 17%. 
Yep. So the polyester is 52% of not of all synthetic fibers of the overall. Oh, no, I'm, I, no, I'm sorry. So, so actual total global fiber production in 2019, polyester is 52% of all fibers made. Other right. synthetics, so nylon is about just under 6 just actually 5%. Other synthetics are just under 6%. And then you have kind of this general group of more natural materials. Some of these are that man-made cellulosic category. A man-made cellulosic is something like a bamboo or a eucalyptus-based fiber. And you, then you have cotton and other plant-based. Other plant-based is just under 6%. And cotton is just about 23%. And I think wool is around 6% or 4, 3% too, right? Uh, wool, wool is 1% of total 1%. global fiber. Okay. Actually, sorry, 1.5%. Got it. Got it. And that's obviously trending down over the last few decades. Wool used to be sort of much, much higher. And so the the other the important thing, right, to, to table set on synthetic fibers is that for the longest time, it's primarily derived from petroleum. Is that correct? Absolutely. Still, still today. And so help up people and help me understand, you know, how, you know, I go, we go from petroleum to, you know, Nike athleisure. Yeah, exactly. So that's a great question. And I think this is where, you know, there, there isn't a lot of uh, visibility into this part of the value chain. I think oftentimes when I, you know, share with friends or, or anybody that, Hey, you know, did you know that your textiles came from oil? Very fun, uh, Zoom cocktail conversation. <laughs> but, you know, oftentimes the answer is no. Tell me more. And so basically, synthetics come from petroleum. And the starting source, it's, it's really basically the synthetics are effectively a polymer. And a polymer is comprised of monomers, which are kind of, you know, your, your building blocks. Those building blocks come from petroleum sources. So an easier way of saying it is, you know, the majority of clothes come from petrochemicals. So petroleum, you know, is um, extracted and then refined into these um, monomer building blocks that are combined to create a polymer or, you know, kind of a plastic, a resin. That resin is then melted down. And a really easy visual for this is kind of if you think of a shower head. So you, you melt this plastic down through a shower head like spigot. And then that is automatically circulated into a yarn. And that's how synthetic textile yarns are, are manufactured. Did that make sense? Because if it didn't, I can kind of repeat that and try to do a more step-by-step approach. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it makes sense that the big question I have is, is it, is it sort of the original source petroleum that is also, you know, obviously used for energy that is 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 you is is turned into that monomer or is there is it like an offshoot is it like a side product of petroleum that then is utilized as a monomer or like you know when we when we pull literally pull oil out of out of the ground is it like oh some majority of this is going into being burned for energy and then a small percentage is going to go some some percentage is going to go to being turned into monomer or is it the process of burning oil for energy has a byproduct that is then utilized as the the monomer? You know, I I don't think it's a byproduct, but I could double check that. My co-founder, Billy, definitely has much more knowledge in the the complete step-by-step component, but I'm pretty sure it's just straight up crude oil that's being extracted and then put into this process. Got it. 
Uh, although, Either way is obviously petroleum derived. Yeah. And then I was going to say, I mean, the, the thing is like, even if it is a byproduct, it's still not, not the best source. And then one other thing to highlight is, and this is kind of when I was doing my research into the supply chain for my own purposes. If you, you know, look at the, the concept of taking those recycled water bottles and downcycling them into textiles, you know, the ultimate source for that is still, is still petro based. So moving away from um, those traditional sources is, is really key. Although, and I would love to dive into this a little bit more, not all bioplastics are created equal as well. But that's a, that's a different component of the environmental profile of the materials that are actually being used. But we can definitely talk about some of the challenges with, you know, I guess I'll just jump into it. Often, often people think that if something is bio-based, it inherently makes it biodegradable, but that's not the case. So we can kind of talk about those intricacies, but, you know, I think it's important, number one, to move away from petroleum, but to also simultaneously consider the types of materials and monomers that are actually being utilized if you are also going from a bio-based source. Got it. And I think, yeah, I think, I think the, the sort of confusion and the, and the fuzziness around bio-based being actual biodegradable or not is, reminds me similar of in the food industry, the term organic Mm. and that organic is sort of this like catch all that the industry has adopted to just tell consumers like, this is good for you and the world. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas like it's, it's a, there's no regulation on the word organic really at mm-hmm. all. And B, there's such a, it's such a spectrum of, of, of or, like organic farming has such a wide spectrum that, you know, there, there is organic farming that is not conducive. It's not, there's a difference between like organic farming and regenerative farming. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And not all organic food is, is necessarily good for you. So they could be organic and still be unhealthy for you nutrition wise. So it, it reminds me of that in a way. Uh, that's such a great analogy. Absolutely. And I love that you just brought up, you know, regenerative because that's something that we think about in textiles as well. Yep. And so the big, the big problem here is that, you know, majority, uh, overwhelming majority of synthetic textiles, which again is the biggest percentage of fashion apparel overall is derived from petroleum. And we, as a as a, you know, uh, planet need to wean off of fossil fuels because it is a, it's not necessarily an unlimited resource as some think, and it is causing, you know, just incredible amounts of environmental damage, both in terms of the gas emissions, but also in terms of the, the damage it causes just to extract it and, and continue to find new sources of it as we kind of dry up the, the initial one. So we just need to get off of petroleum. And we already know that from an energy st- standpoint, I think folks think about electric cars and, you know, all these other, you know, you know, changing the way, you know, we get electricity, you know, moving towards renewables, whether that be, you know, whether that be solar, whether that be hydro, whether it be wind, you know, whether it be algae and other new innovations coming in that, in that sphere, fusion eventually probably, hopefully will be sort of the biggest driver of our, of our energy uh, grid. But we also need to get off petroleum from a from a fashion standpoint, and I think that's the big takeaway here: is most people don't have no idea that more than half the clothes that are in their closet are derived from oil. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and you know, I think that one one other thing to highlight is you know moving away from petroleum is one component, but moving away from petroleum and doing it in a way that incorporates responsible design. 
So, you know, thinking about material design in a rational standpoint and designing our materials so that they don't have any other negative repercussions such as microfiber pollution. Yes, yes. And that's, we could go off on a a bit of a tangent here, but I think a lot of people think of also recycled, you know, anything made using uh, recycled plastic, which is another kind of trend in fashion of like this, this sweatshirt was made of recycled water bottles. We've, we've made that same mistake early on in Animalia and not realizing that these are massive contributors of microplastics every time it's washed and mm-hmm. then gets released into the water system. But I, I want to go back to Kintra and the petroleum for a standpoint. So the big innovation, right, that Kintra, your company has created is the replacement of oil as a monomer into uh, foodstock as a monomer. Is that, that, is that the easiest way to kind of summarize it? Yeah, um, exactly. So instead of petroleum, Kintra sources are derived from sugar. Got it. And walk me through, I think there's there's first, second, and third generation food stocks, and you're and currently in one of them, and you kind of want to progress to, to, to another. Can you just kind of walk us through that? Yeah, totally. So, so the concept of first, second, and third generation feedstocks is um, pretty simple. First and second, sorry, first generation feedstocks are something like uh, corn or wheat. So something that, you know, competes uh, with uh, land for food use. Uh, Second generation feedstock is something like corn stover or any kind of something that's left over after the harvest. And then a third generation feedstock is something like algae. And each of these can be utilized, at least, you know, for Kintra in our supply chain to make those monomers, make those building blocks that we need. You know, the reason I said we come from sugar is that, you know, we're where we're taking basically sugar as the, the source that's needed to make those to make those building blocks for us. And we can use any of those feedstocks to, you know, get those sugars from, but we are, you know, kind of beholden to our suppliers. So right now the the industry is using primarily first generation feedstocks. So things like corn and wheat to make those value-added chemicals or, you know, those monomers that we would be using in our supply chain. Our vision um, in the future is something where, you know, we can help create a market. The more people that we are working with and showcase that our material is valuable and can be utilized at mass scale, the more we can showcase to our suppliers a new type of feedstock that we want to use. So, it's kind of a chicken and the egg. I think a lot of people get kind of hung up and they want to go straight to the perfect solution first, which would ideally be a third generation feedstock. But there's a, a process of moving industries away from what was once traditional to something that's new and novel. And that requires participation across industry stakeholder groups. It requires participation from chemical companies who are, you know, choosing to derive to use bio-based sources to create these value-added chemicals or building blocks. And then it requires innovators like us to kind of bridge the gap between that industry and the fashion industry that's saying, yes, I'm, I'm going to be committing to buying your bio-based yarns instead of petroleum-based yarns. And the more of a market that we have, the more partnership we can build across the industry to kind of exert impact and showcase, you know, instead of using corn and wheat, we would prefer that you use the corn stover. And then, you know, taking it even a step further, 
once we have, you know, big brands behind us and more and more industry awareness for this issue, then that kind of gives gives the the chemical companies a reason to move to even a third generation feedstock. So it's it's a big vision and it requires a lot of cross industry collaboration, but for us kind of synthesizing this big vision down into things that we can do today, we know that the building blocks that we use today, even though they're coming from first-generation feedstocks, are going to be built for this big vision, this big future that we want to be able to to help usher in. So everything that we choose as our building blocks or our kind of ingredients in our kitchen, we know that those will be able to be sourced from both first, second, and third-generation feedstocks as soon as, you know, we're able to kind of usher in this new way of doing business. Got it. And the the one you're using today, you said, is, is sugar, right? Oh, well, it's uh, sugar derived from corn and wheat. Sugar derived from corn and wheat. Got it. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. And what has prevented the industry from moving this direction fat, you know, sooner? Is it is there a technology breakthrough that you know is part of what makes Kintra special? That you know there is just a, a a true innovation that has allowed that's allowing you to do what you do that didn't exist before. Is it a pricing issue where you know this? you know, deriving monomers this way has traditionally been expensive and you found a way to make it less expensive. Like what, what has, you know, what, what has prevented this from happening sooner? Is it a quality issue? Like, and then what is the kind of innovation that, that Kintra's pioneering that you, you know, makes you bullish on, you know, this, this, this becoming a, a bigger change? Well, James, um, that's really insightful because I think it's all of the above. <laughs> so we can we can kind of take that step by step. So I guess step one is let's talk about industry infrastructure. You know, there is a lot of innovation happening in these kind of, I guess we'll, we'll just call them biosynthetics, so bio-based synthetic materials. I guess first let me kind of further clarify and define that term. So, you know, a biosynthetic is a synthetic material. So, you know, it follows the kind of uh, same process as a PET or a nylon wood. And it, you know, it is used, it uses natural uh, materials instead of petroleum. So that's kind of, you know, way that we can describe a biosynthetic. Within biosynthetics, there's a lot of innovation happening. Unfortunately, a number of innovators that have been in the space for a number of years are using really exotic feedstocks that can be challenging to convert to those building blocks. And a number of innovators are setting out to do both that feedstock conversion process. So turning the, you know, the feedstock, whether it's first, second, or third into the, you know, the kind of building blocks used to make the material itself. And that requires a lot of new infrastructure. So I think the reason that we haven't achieved this as an industry sooner is a lot of the approach to innovation has been completely, completely so innovative that it requires new infrastructure build outs and it requires a lot of investment up front. And I think that's always really challenging with getting an innovation off the ground is if it requires, you know, this, this high number, this large amount of funding in order to just um, get it from, you know, 
just past point A. And so Kintra differs because we're actually able to fit ex- exactly as a drop-in replacement to the existing in- industry infrastructure out there. And instead of doing that feedstock conversion ourselves, that's where we partner with, with industry that's out there already kind of moving in a bio-based direction. And then we're you know providing them a market to sell those bio-based materials, the bio-based monomers, building blocks that they're making that we turn into a valuable material for, in our case, the fashion industry. So we're kind of um, bridging the, you know, bridging, being a bridge between industries. And that and that's really important to highlight, you know, the reason that we are able to scale and successfully serve brands soon is, is purely an infrastructure play. If we were, if we were setting out there to build completely new infrastructure, I think that we would have a very hard and long journey ahead of us. And our perspective is, you know, we don't have time to wait in in terms of providing solutions for the climate crisis today. So that's kind of what differs Kintra in terms of, you know, the first aspect is just purely let's look at existing industry infrastructure and let's make sure that we can utilize it to serve our customers. The second component I think you mentioned is performance. So that's that's really important. You know, I think there's a number of innovations that get 90% of the way there, and then they just can't meet that remaining 10% of performance. I think a really great example is PLA. You know, that's a bio-based textile that's been on the market for a number of years, but it hasn't had widespread adoption because it's inherently kind of a stiff and brittle material. And that's not exactly what you want in in the fashion industry. So, you know, if it doesn't perform just as good as the widely used materials out there, it's just not going to have the adoption that's necessary. And then I guess the third to highlight is affordability, which really ties into that scalability component. I just, I can't stress that enough in terms of the fitting into industry infrastructure. Although we'll start out, you know, as a higher price point, as we're kind of ironing out our own scale-up processes and finding those partners that we're going to be working with, we're, we know that we're going to hit economies of scale. And the more people that we service, the more we'll be able to service in the future so that we can help brands that are doing massive production become more sustainable as well. Awesome. What, what would you say then is the <clears throat> biggest challenge? You've named a few areas that you know, are the, are the kind of sources of innovation and, and sort of sea change happening across the industry. And, you know, to be fair, there, there's like in a, in a good way that there is a, there is momentum across the fashion apparel industry to become more sustainable. I think in the last few years, you know, I've, you kind of can feel it just in working in and, or, in and around it, which is a good thing. I mean, like you and I both want that to happen across the board. I mean, there's innovations that need to happen on cotton. There's innovations that need to happen on waste and recycling. There's lots of innovations happening in a good way. There's also a lot of greenwashing out there. And mm-hmm. a lot of people are kind of capitalizing this moment. We had a whole episode about the kind of greenwashing and fashion and how to spot it. But for your, what Kintra is doing specifically, and again, in introducing this feedstock monomer to replace the petroleum monomer. What do you, what is the single biggest challenge you think you're going to have ahead, you know, that, you know, you're going to need to overcome to make your dream a reality? I, I think it's consumer education. I mean, you know, the, the greenwashing thing, it, it really is extremely pervasive and it's so hard to find, you know, the, the data out there um, in a very simple and easy to understand manner. I mean, um, you know, I think that 
I'm trying to keep my explanations really clear, but it, it you know, it takes a lot to explain what's happening first, what's happening in the industry, and then second, the the key areas for change. And I think the the amount of misinformation that's out there, you know, you can make almost anything sound in one way, shape or another sustainable if you point somebody's attention at one thing, but detract their attention from something else. So I think, you know, overcoming kind of the the misinformation that that is out there is going to be a really key thing that that we're going to have to do. And I think the best thing that we can do is just to lend our voice to highlighting the things that aren't frequently talked about in the industry, both for the consumers and also being kind of a thought partner for our brands. Textile Exchange Survey found that only 8% of brands could trace their supply chain back to their chemical suppliers. And yet, you know, as we talked about earlier, 63% of brands uh, or 63% of the global fiber market is dominated by these synthetic materials. So for for Kintra, you know, our hope is that we can be kind of this, you know, being able to shine a light into this opaque part of the industry will be incredibly helpful both for brands and for consumers and kind of clearing up some of the misinformation that is out there today. But does that mean though, and, and, and just like my sort of challenge on that is, if if the consumer education is what you think the biggest challenge is going to be, then you know I infer from that that you're saying that consumers need to drive the demand of these more sustainable products versus you know the companies themselves, you know sort of driving you know kind of driving that demand by 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 taking the initiative and proactively creating more sustainable products. Do you, like. Is there a world where if I, let's say I'm, you know, I think of some of the, I know synthetics are big in athleisure, right? Mm-hmm. So I think of the biggest athleisure companies in the world, Nike, Adidas, these folks. If I'm Nike or Adidas and I could today, you know, at, at the point where I can get a fiber like Kintra for the same price point at the same quality with, you know, much better ratings on by, you know, on sustainability, on lowering my emissions because of how it's derived. What is preventing me from just going all in on that? Why do I need to wait for the consumers to tell me, oh, they want that if that is available? I mean, that's a great question. And I, I think that's one that we're kind of increasingly facing. I think there are, you know, are brands that are, that get it. You know, there, there are brands that have commitment to these sustainability programs all in and completely through. And I think part of the reason that we haven't seen more change happen yet is there really hasn't been a solution like Kentra yet that's ready to go and ready to be integrated into the supply chain. So when I think about our challenges just as Kintra, I think, you know, for us, it's, it's going to be you know, really highlighting how we're better in terms of sustainability across the board and less about figuring out the, can we integrate with these companies because we know we can. And we designed our materials to be able to do that. And I I really can't stress the consumer piece enough. I mean, I think that the reason there are brands that are going in all in on sustainability and the reason that greenwashing does exist is that the consumer is looking for it increasingly and consumers have so much power and they really, you know, truly can create the change that they're looking for if they demand it from the brand. Yeah. I think they are demanding sustainability and they're starting to, but they're not, you know, it's, it's hard, like, the reason we're having this podcast, right, is I just don't think a majority of consumers know that 
a synthetic textiles are the majority of the industry and b that they're derived for petroleum i think you know getting like a lot of consumers to that depth of education to today where people don't consume information much at all like we pretty much are creating an era where people only consume 180 characters primarily you know i think is this is one of the things that keeps me up at night is you know, how much are we really going to be able to educate consumers beyond just demanding high level things? Like I want to, I want my brands to be more sustainable, but if they don't know the level beyond that, then they're not going to be able to really determine who's sustainable and who's not and what to actually look for and what to demand for and whatnot. And I think it's getting harder in a way to educate consumers because of the combination of both lowering attention spans, which we're seeing across mm-hmm. the board and increase of misinformation and the, in the inability to vet that misinformation. And so this is just where it, it, it's con I, I think brands like and innovations like you're like what Kinsha is doing. I want to believe consumers can drive that demand, but I think it's, it's increasingly hard to educate consumers in a way because of, again, misinformation and, and lower, lower attention spans. And so, you know, it, it feels to me the brands at some point are also going to have to just be proactive and say, we're not going to wait for the consumers to demand we get off petroleum because they don't really know that. We're just going to do that. And we, and we need a partner like Kentra that enables us to do that without sacrificing margin quality and the things that, you know, big companies just, are, are unwilling to sacrifice. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that we have hit that turning point, especially this year. You know, I've never seen the words supply chain in more mainstream media news articles than I have this year alone, especially with the fashion industry. There's been high scrutiny with everything that's been happening during the pandemic. And I think that, you know, the consumer is ready. And and I think brands are just increasingly recognizing that. What are your thoughts on, you know, introducing blockchain technology in order to properly track supply chain. This is something I've been pushing for in a while. I've I've long felt it's a far more, you know, interesting and and applicable use of blockchain than cryptocurrency, which is more of a speculative investment vehicle. But, you know, for food and for fashion, we could be using this technology to, you know, track the supply chain of these products that go through many hands in a decentralized way that we can trust because that's one of the things blockchain enables. But I, it's weird because I just I don't see it being adopted, and it seems so obvious to me. Is there something I'm missing, and and why that isn't a obvious and beneficial solution, or is it that it is, and just the powers that be are resist things like that because like they want to keep the status quo more or less. Well, I think it's starting. So there, I don't know if you've heard of Circular ID by the the company Eon Group, Eon ID. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're based out in New York actually as well, but so they, they, you know, they're starting the, the systems tracking. And for us at Kentra, I mean, we love it. We think it's an amazing idea. I think it's vital and necessary and, and helping get that, you know, both the, the company and the brand, the information that they need to ensure that their supply chain is, you know, completely traceable and also sharing that all the way through to the end consumer. But increasingly, you know, as we're starting to think about the product end of life as well, having a garment that can be traced and tracked potentially allow us or, or will enable us and allow us to collect that, that garment back and turn it back into fiber. So we, Kintra, we can do that in two different ways. So, you know, 
be wonderful to partner with a brand on kind of a take back program and collect the the garments back that way. And then we could either put that through a physical recycling process or a chemical recycling process. And often when I say chemical recycling, I get kind of like a deer in the headlights look. Chemical recycling, although it sounds scary because it has the word chemical, it simply means, you know, breaking that polymer back down into its monomer um, building blocks. It's a very simple process. Well, simple, but also intensive. But that is the, the future of the industry is incorporating physical and chemical recycling. And so the idea of being able to trace the material isn't just to be able to trace it from its original supply chain. For us at Kintra, it's also a way to keep that in circularity and you know be able to actually create new fibers from the materials that we have released in the past. I, I had an interesting conversation with with actually one one of our advisors, and uh, you know he shared with us at Kintra, you know it sounds like the materials that you make will never be sold. They'll technically always be rented all the way through the end customer because it sounds like your goal is ultimately to you know bring it back to to. Kintred to the Kintred lab or to our manufacturing facility and respin that and turn that into something new. So again, I'm kind of sharing some big picture vision stuff that we um, haven't, you know, quite started implementing yet. But you know, knowing that there's companies like Circular ID, Eon ID out there, you know, makes us feel confident that we'll eventually be able to close that loop in, in that manner. Innovations like Kintred, we can talk Kintred specifically. So again, the the innovation there's there's more than this that you Kintra is doing of course but the primary one being moving off of petroleum based monomers to feedstock based monomers does that is the primary impact for that right now the you know curbing the greenhouse emissions of those end products which is massive and and even if that is the primary and only impact it's a huge one so I'm not meaning to trivialize that but what my question is is there also any impact that's going to have do you think in the other you know, sort of problems with the fashion industry, namely water pollution, the landfill and the waste and and fair labor and practices and conditions? Absolutely. So I think, you know, petroleum is one big, big component of it. But another huge component is microfiber pollution. And it's really not talked about enough. And I know I've kind of gone back to this a couple of times in our conversation, but, you know, I just really want to highlight that every time that clothes are washed that are made with these, you know, traditional synthetic textiles, so things like PET or the recycled down, you know, downcycled tech plastic water bottles that are turned into textiles or RPET, recycled PET or nylon. So anytime that clothes made with these fiber, these materials are washed, millions of tiny microfibers are released. And these are tiny plastic particles that, you know, get through the water system and they end up out in in our freshwater and our ocean environments. And I found this shocking. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation reported that the rate of this, these microfibers getting out into the ocean is equivalent to the, the volume of 50 billion plastic water bottles per year. And when you think about that statistic, it really makes you question why we started collecting plastic water bottles and turning, putting them back into our oceans in these small microfiber forms. But yeah, it's, it's a huge issue. And that's actually what was kind of the aha moment for Kintra was, you know, the Patagonia put out an incredible study that they found, you know, they, they studied a number of different garments that they make, and they found that thousands to millions of microfibers come off one single clothing item from one single wash cycle. And so, you know, you can imagine, I guess, 
pretty quickly how, how we reach that giant volume that is released annually. But yeah, so the aha moment was this, my, my co-founder read this Patagonia study and uh, he's a surfer and he also happens to be a nano engineer. And he was working at the fast growing 3D printing company out in the Bay Area called Carbon at the time. And he was kind of working with a similar kind of like spandex-like materials. And, uh, you know, he basically just saw this microfiber pollution issue as a materials design challenge that he set out to solve. And so the kind of the two thesis that he formed was, was one, can there be a high performing material that doesn't rely on petroleum at all? And two, can there be a synthetic material that has a chemical composition, a formulation that's um, more like a natural material, so it'll be compostable in, in, in nature. And the reason that's important is that materials in a wastewater treatment facility, if a material is compostable, it'll just turn into CO2 and water um, in that wastewater treatment facility instead of getting through that compost environment and going out to pollute the, the ocean. And so that was kind of the aha moment for Kintra. And I think it's really important to highlight, you know, it, it's not just moving away from petroleum. It's also if we are moving away from petroleum, we shouldn't be making PET or nylon polyamides any longer because you could make a bio-based PET, but that bio-based PET will still get through that wastewater treatment facility and get out and continue this perpetuating this microplastic pollution. So for, for us, a material needs to be both bio-based and biodegradable, or actually we should be very specific and say compostable in particular. So, so yeah, the, the microfiber issue is, is one that we, you know, is really driving our work at Kintra. Hmm. And then last question here there. So I think, you know, on an annual basis right now, total greenhouse gas emissions, roughly 50 billion tons. And so if we just do some simple math and of course, simplifying this for just illustration purposes, if the fashion apparel industry is 10% of that, that's 5 billion tons a year of greenhouse gas emissions from that industry. Now, maybe you've done this with your partner as a fun exercise, maybe not. And, and this is going to be a hard question to answer top of mind, but I'm just going to ask it anyway, uh, just from a, like a fun curiosity standpoint. Do you like, if there's 5 billion tons of greenhouse gas gases emitted per year in the fashion and apparel industry today, if we were to move 100% of the synthetic industry from petroleum to feedstock through, you know, Kintra and other, other companies, right? Cause no, no one company is going to provide 100% of raw materials. So we need other companies doing the same. If, if we were to make that, that switch all together, any sense of what that 5 billion tons of emissions would turn into, or is it too hard to do that back of the envelope math? You know, it, that that's a great question, and I wish I had a more simple answer than the one I'm going to give you. It, it really comes down to considering a number of different elements. So for us, we're, we're hypersensitive and hyper-aware of, you know, just making sure, hopefully, that every one of our factory partners operates from a clean energy grid perspective. So, you know, you have to take into consideration a number of different um, factors when calculating the, the total greenhouse gas emissions. And I'll, I'll share just one other kind of example of, of why it gets so complicated to kind of do, do a, a big estimate like that is some 
bio, some bio-based materials actually release um, more greenhouse gases than, than their petroleum-based counterparts. And the reason for that is some monomers are just extremely difficult to make from bio-based um, inputs, whereas the, the petroleum-based version, or, you know, it's the same monomer, but deriving it from petroleum is such a streamlined and easy process that, it, you know, it, it doesn't require this multi-step and en- energy intensive procedure to go through. So, for example, bio-based PET actually releases more uh, greenhouse gases than, than petroleum-based PET due to this really carbon-intensive multi-step processing. So, it gets really complex when you're kind of trying to compare processes and look at the industry overarchingly. And that's kind of one thing for, for us, Kentra, is we're always just going to let the science um, lead us and do the math. And, and you know, for example... I'll give you one one other example on on kind of that topic is when we are kind of going back to the the circularity and kind of bringing the materials full circle and collecting them and either turning them into fiber through physical recycling or turning them back into our building blocks through chemical recycling. One other component that we'll be considering is, is it better to actually send this material, this garment, to a compost facility and turn this into fertilizer because of, you know, will, will the uh, recycling processes be too energy intensive? And if the answer is yes, then the best end of life for that material is, you know, to, to, go, to be composted industrially. So it really depends on partners across the entire value chain. It depends on the energy grid that a lot of this sits on. And, you know, that, that's some of the considerations that have to be made when you look at the supply chain as, as a whole. All right. Yeah, it's a very it's a very detailed answer. And and I understand why it's hard to just come up with a number. Yeah, I go back and forth myself between, you know, wanting to give give people and listeners and, and also the people I, I I talk to, you know, the kind of the true detailed response, but also recognizing sometimes I need to give them just like a simple data point to take with them that, that they can remember. But I think the the big takeaway here is, you know, the fashion apparel industry is a huge contributor to to the the the, the environmental you know hazards out there and into the climate crisis both you know in terms of greenhouse gases in terms of water pollution in terms of waste and you know a big big part of that is synthetics and textiles as you mentioned that account for 63% of of the fibers in the in that industry and then nearly you know all of them to date are derived from petroleum monomers and very thankful to see Kintra out there working to change that because you know if you get this right, yeah, it can it can sort of have a massively significant impact on on climate change and you know climate change is just one of those things that there's no silver bullet. There's not like there is absolutely no silver bullet in climate change. I liken climate change to mental health in a way in that like n- neither of these you know kind of big epidemics we're facing have a silver bullet solution where it's like, oh, we just do this one thing and then it's solved. They need to be sort of, we need to be combating them and and solving them from so many different angles simultaneously. And I'm glad Kintra is, is playing its part in, in doing so. 
Thank you. And sorry if I get way too detailed about considering all of the different components that need to be working together to to really impact change in the industry. But, you know, it's true. You you can't just look at one solution in isolation. Uh, You always have to look at, you know, what is the best move and the the best path forward. And sometimes it might have surprising results when you actually start peeling back the layers of that onion, as I mentioned earlier, what inspired me to kind of start this work in the first place. Yeah. No, no, don't apologize for being detailed about your work ever. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Well, awesome. We usually just finish with a couple of rapid fire questions. I'll ask them and just, just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. It'll be pretty, pretty simple. So first question is, what is one um, book you recommend in the world of environmental and, or climate change that, you know, has had an impact for you that, that you think other people should read? Drawdown. Paul Hawkins' Drawdown? Yes. Yeah, got it. And what is one film could be or docu series that you know? Same question on on a film or docu series that you think should be watched. That's not like let's let's avoid the the sort of like super super well known things like Planet Earth. What's uh, what's one that you think that has also had an impact on you that you think other people should check out? Well, for me, my octopus teacher. I uh, love. Yeah. Those. They're just my favorite creatures in the world, and well. Hard to, hard to say that, but they, I truly love them. And I just think, you know, for me, being having this beautiful imagery of somebody out in the water was, was really was really impactful. Absolutely. We at Animalia love the octopus and have, have written a whole newsletter dedicated to them before. So it's a, it's a huge, huge love of mine. Okay, third question. What is your favorite um, wildlife? Oh, um... Gosh, non non domesticated non human animal. Well, I would usually say octopus, but I already said that. I, I mean, I guess actually, funny that this came to mind. I wasn't expecting this, but a bear. Even though I had a, a sensitive moment with a bear, I think that just led me to have much more respect for for the creature. Yeah, any particular species of bear, or just bears in general. Well, the moment that I had was was with a, a black or brown bear, and they were uh, beautiful as a mama and two cubs. <laughs> and I think we kind of startled them a little bit, and they startled us. Uh, but but yeah, I, I guess now I have a forever kinship, so to say. Very cool. Very cool. And then last last one is what is one like a very accessible you know change or behavior that you think more people should adopt in, in order to you know contribute to saving this planet. So think of something that is something, you know, broadly, broadly accessible. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, just washing your clothes in cold water or even skipping the dry cycle and just kind of like letting your clothes hang dry. That, that really is, is hugely helpful in terms of just reducing emissions that you can personally impact. Yeah. Very cool. And I, I actually, I've been hang drying my clothes for about a couple of years. Although I sometimes get feedback from people that it has that like hang dry smell. <laughs> I, yeah. I haven't figured out how to get rid of that yet. But, Have you uh, ever washed, used like white vinegar to wash your clothes with or like if, you're, if you can wash them? I that... definitely have not used vinegar okay. <laughs> to wash my clothes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I guess that was a weird suggestion, but anyway, but yeah, I mean, I think just like doing things like simple things like that, like hand washing or, or just, yeah, you know, uh, con- considering just the little things really, really go a long way. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you, Elisa. Sorry for, I think, <laughs> it's, I think it's the I instead of the Y that no throws that through, through, through me off. Um, <laughs> okay. 
Well, thank you for, for joining us uh, and taking the time and, and, you know, most, more importantly, thank you for the work you're doing to, to save this planet. It's super valuable. And I'm, I'm very excited, you know, even with, with, with or without being involved in a small way as a, as an investor, I'm very excited to see what happens with Kintra and the, the impact that, that is in front of you. Well, thank you. Thank you, James. We're honored to have you on our mission and, and thank you for having me today. Awesome. All right. Have a great night.